Amen. So, as you can tell by the digital board, we are in our last week of our FAQ series. And the way this has worked is you can get online and through the suggestion box ask any question that you want about life and Christianity and all that good stuff, and we do the best we can to answer it. So tonight is kind of our last one. And it's kind of our, our second round of rapid fire where, where we try to answer as many of these as we can. So there's four that we're going to try to cover tonight, and they're really good ones. So let's just jump right off with kind of a deeper one, um, and we should be good to go. How many of you are in middle school? Is it just Caravana? Duty and Caravan? Perfect. Okay, that's fine. Just wanted to check. So here's, here's the question that was asked, and this is a good one, I think. Um, here we go. Does God still love you? If you are gay or transgender, and those who are gay and transgender say that this isn't a choice. So if it isn't godly, then why does God set this feeling inside of them? Okay, so we're starting with a good one. Uh, does God still love you if you're gay or transgender? And those who are gay and transgender say that this isn't a choice. So if it isn't godly, then why does God put this feeling in them in the first place? I want to recommend two books to you, okay? Um, the first one is a book called Transgender. Guess what it's about? The book is called Transgender by a guy named Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N, Roberts. Transgender by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. And it's just a book that, from a Christian perspective, if you encounter someone who is transgender, how do you talk to them? Like, how do you bring up stuff in conversation? That book is a huge way to help. It's only like 60 pages. It's very small. Transgender by Vaughn Roberts. The other one, is God Anti-Gay? I've talked about this one before because it's so awesome. It's by a guy named Sam Alberry. Now here's the story with this book. Uh, first of all, it's like $7 on Amazon. You can see it's very short. This, is a, this could be a great summer read. Um, I know a couple of students have read it and their parents have read it too. So, Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. Sam is a pastor in England, here we go, who is gay. Alright? Now, here's the deal. He's gay. He has these feelings. He has these drawings and these pushes. But he doesn't act on these feelings because he saw what the Bible says about living a homosexual lifestyle. And the book is about how he said, when I had these feelings and these desires, I looked at the Bible and it said that I could not do these things. So I don't give in to that lifestyle. And here are the verses that I ran into. And he walks you through these. So Engaging with, with a neighbor who's gay or talking with someone who's transgender is one thing coming from, you know, me, 28-year-old, heterosexual, married, white male, but it's a, who's a pastor, but it's a whole other thing to come from someone who's actually going through some of these things, and he sees them from a Christian perspective. I would recommend this book to anybody. It's a great step, and because some people think, is it possible to be gay and Christian at the same time? Well, that's what we're going to talk about too, but Sam really has some really enlightening stuff, and he does it in like 82 pages. So, big thought. Here we go. Um, here's the big argument that I like that this question addresses. It's this idea of, but this is how I feel, right? Being gay, transgender, uh, bisexual, whatever. This is how I feel. It's so strong, right? It's such a strong feeling inside of me. This, it's just how I'm wired. How can this feeling that I have, how can this be wrong if I can't turn it off? How can it be wrong if it's part of who I am? And this is the question that everybody's like, I don't know, that's a really good question. How can it be wrong if I feel so strongly about it? Okay, 
Get this through your heads right now. And I wish someone had told me this when I was younger. How can it be wrong if I feel so strongly about it? Get this through your head. Homosexual people and transgender people are not the only people who get to make that argument. If it's wrong, then why do I feel so strongly about it, right? That's the big push that so many people in the same-sex community would argue. But they're not the only people who get to make that argument. Any guy or girl in here who's going through lust can make that same argument. Anyone going through intense bouts with anger, heterosexual or homosexual, can make that same argument. Ever since I was like 15 or 16, lust has really been a strong part in me. Something in me just leans towards lust. And I would imagine there are a lot of guys and several girls in here who can relate Some people lean towards anger. Some people lean towards impatience or insecurity. I lean towards lust. I've always been that way. It's just how how I'm wired. I can't turn it off. It's a constant desire, and it's something that I have to deal with. And we all have these things, right? Not just gay or transgender people. I'm wired this way. It can't be wrong. Maybe some of us, we don't act towards our parents the way we should. You just, you just snap on them. Or as soon, like you have fun with your friends and it's awesome, then you go home, as soon as you step in the home where your parents are, just, you just shut down. It's like you're bent towards that. Or you get on the internet or your phone and you just begin to feel this pull towards looking at things you shouldn't look at. It's just this strong, it's just how you're wired. Or you hear people talking about someone else and it's just so easy to jump in and take part in talking about this other person. We all have something wrong with our hearts. Um, It just affects people in different ways. My least favorite day of the week, for me, my least favorite day of the week is my day off. Since we work on Sundays, we get a day off. Um, But my day off is my least favorite day because I'll be like sitting at home on my couch just doing nothing, and pornography is just like... Why are, come on, why aren't, and it's just this pull, right? That's why I like being here, because it takes my mind off that. I can focus on other things. It's good for my heart. It's just how I'm wired. But the Bible says that pornography is wrong. The Bible says sex outside of marriage is wrong. Therefore, based on what God's Word says, that desire in me should not be acted on, even if I feel the pull. It's the exact same argument that those who might be same-sex or those who might be transgender make. I feel this pull. It can't be wrong if I feel this pull. Well, we all have things that we feel pulled towards that are not good. But we don't act on them based on what the Bible says. Listen to what Sam Alberry says in his book. He's talking about Mark 8.34. This is Mark 8.34 and then Sam's quote. Mark 8.34 Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Listen to what Sam says. It's the same for us all because Jesus says, Whoever, heterosexual or homosexual, Whoever, I am to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself 
does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to the deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. Let me read that part one more time. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It means saying no to the deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. This is Sam, a gay pastor, saying these things. The deepest sense of who you are. Think about the arguments that can be made. And think about your own life with anger or lust or something or impatience. Same-sex attraction, transgenderism. The deepest sense of who you are. But I feel this so deeply. How could it be wrong? Sam Alberry is saying that to become a Christian, the deepest part of yourself is what you have to give up. Being rude to your parents. It's just hardwired into you. It's so easy to snap on them. Cheating on a test has become so easy to you now that you've figured out how to do it. The argument of, but I feel this way, so why would God make me this way? Why would God make this so easy to do if it's wrong? This is not something that only gay or transgender people get to say. We are all broken and sinful. If you had 50 pieces of glass and you threw one rock at every piece of glass, the cracks would look different on every single one of them. The cracks on our hearts show in different ways. For some people, their heart is broken in that they feel pulled towards people of the same gender. For some of us, our hearts are broken in ways that we are, we are just so pulled towards lust. For others, it's pulled towards impatience or anger. The deepest part of yourself is broken for all of us. The deepest part of yourself being broken is not God picking on you. It's a sign that salvation cannot come from within yourself. You can't dig deep. Remember, the deepest part of you is broken. The brokenness in the same-sex community, the brokenness in those of us who are angry, is a shouting reminder that we need someone outside of ourselves to save us. So here's the question. So, well, the second part of the question. Can you, can you be gay and still be a Christian? Well, let me ask it to you like this. Can you be angry at your parents and still be a Christian? Can you cheat on a test and still be a Christian? Can you steal something and still be a Christian? Yes. But to feel a pull towards a sin... Because that's just how you're wired. We're all wired towards sin. It just looks different for different people. To feel a pull towards sin, to commit a sin and not show any remorse, not show any signs of repenting or turning away from that sin, that's false Christianity. When you feel the desire to do something that's sinful, the Christian response is to do three things. So you feel this pull, whether it's because you're wired or you're not really wired this way, but you just you see something, so you feel this pull. Three things. Number one is to fight the action. We don't just give in. We don't just go with the flow into this sin. But number two is we pray for this feeling to change. We pray for this pull to change. Christians don't just say, well, that's just how I'm wired. If you woke up this morning and the foot of your bed was on fire, you wouldn't be like, well, I guess just, that's just how the day is going to go. Right? No, you're going to immediately try to put this thing out. 
When we see something wrong with ourselves, we don't just accept it. We pray. So while we fight this desire, we're praying that the, that the desire will go away. And then the third thing is we get help. We talk to people. You have to get outside of your own head and get help, regardless of what the sin is. One of the best ways to explain this is God loves you where you are. Yes, he does, 100%. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Does that make sense? God loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And if you stay where you are, it's a sign that you probably haven't really encountered the life-changing love of God because he moves us away from where we are. So that's the first question. Second one is this. How do you connect a head knowledge of Jesus to a heart knowledge of Jesus? So how do you connect a head knowledge of Jesus to a heart knowledge? The first one is this. So here's how you can, so you've got this knowledge of Christ, now how do you put it into your heart? It's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. You have to begin to walk this out. You have the knowledge, now you have to begin to live as if you have that knowledge. You can read about basketball for the rest of your life, but the only way you're going to be able to appreciate and grow in the game is to get on the court, right? So many people come to other people and they say they have doubts about salvation, but then they leave the conversation and their lives don't change at all. They don't get in their Bible, they don't ask for help, they don't try to change their daily lives in any way. You can read about poor people your whole life, but until you actually meet someone who is struggling to get by, you'll never really know what it means to be poor. It's just head knowledge. You can drive past the Krispy Kreme hot light every day, but if you never order an original glaze, right? Head knowledge becomes heart knowledge through action. Change your daily routine. If you have doubts, Think about it. You live life down path A, and path A has led you to doubt your salvation. So you need to try path B or path C or bring in some different things. You're just going to keep doubting until you change your routine. Change your daily routine by listening to sermons, reading books about Jesus, telling friends about Jesus, praying to Jesus. Your actions, here it is, your actions will determine whether or not you really want your head knowledge to become heart knowledge. That's kind of my first rebuttal is, because remember the guy, at, the guy wants to be healed, and the first thing that Jesus asks is, do you, do you want to be healed? This is really what you're after? You may want to get better, but are you willing to actually take steps to get better? And that's the first thing that it has to start with. Okay, next one. So we're already halfway home. Here's, I think this was asked by a middle schooler, because uh, you'll find out why. Uh, if Adam and Eve were the first people on earth, who wrote Genesis? Did Adam and Eve write it? And then there's, or, or is the story passed down over time and someone else wrote it? And then there's a follow-up question that says, I'm in middle school. So if we could be in the youth building for the Adam and Eve question, that would be awesome. So here we go. So this is the Adam and Eve question. And Caravan, if it wasn't you, this middle schooler's not here. Um, so here we go. And this, this actually hits on some, some interesting things that maybe we'll expand on a little bit. Okay. Uh, who wrote Genesis? So Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. This is called the Pentateuch, which sounds fancy, but a pentagon has five sides. The Pentateuch has five books. There it is. Um, Jewish and Christian tradition. So not just Christians, but Jewish tradition. Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament all cite Moses as the author of the first five books of the Bible. 
Uh, Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. This is part of how he has such intimate knowledge of God's creation and God's work in creation. But here's the other thing that a lot of people don't think about. And it leads into another question that I'll answer. Um, this, the story of creation with Adam and Eve uh, was probably passed down as well. And a lot of times since we're so far down the timeline of human existence, we don't really like that of things being passed down. But it's true, things get passed down all the time. And even back in Adam and Eve's time when they didn't have anything to write with, it makes a lot of sense when you consider how long people lived back then too. Uh, Genesis 5.5 tells us that Adam lived to be 909. So if Adam was 200 years old when he told you about creation, you could ask him 700 years later and Adam would still be alive to tell you the story. And think about how many people have been born in that 700 years that, and then you would live to be 800 and pass that along. See, the idea of a creation account being passed down throughout generations actually makes pretty decent sense when you consider like the seventh generation down could go right back to Adam, who might have been 800 at the time, and ask him directly. So this idea makes sense when you consider people lived long. So here's kind of the follow-up is, how did people live that long, right? Methuselah's like, what, 969? Give me a break. Like, how does he live? Moses was like 300 and something when he gets called up. So what's the deal? How do these people live so long? Here's kind of the best guess, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, let's see. People were not created to die, right? You're created, and then Adam comes in with sin, and then death comes. People were created to enjoy God for eternity. We were created to live forever. Um, if I take a drop of food color, if I have a gallon of clear water, right, and I take a drop of black food coloring, why I would have black food coloring, I don't know, and you drop one drop in, right? If I drop one drop of black food coloring into that gallon of water, does the gallon of water immediately just turn black? No. This food coloring seeps in, and over time, it colors the entire thing black. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with original sin and age. We were designed to live forever. Age is this gallon of clear water. Then original sin comes in. And slowly over time, the sin being in existence has corroded our ability to live longer. That's why, because you think about it, Adam and Eve commit original sin and they don't die right away. Adam lived to be 909, but he was designed to live forever. And the longer sin is in the world, the more sin grows in the world, the more it has an impact on humanity's ability to live. The wages of sin is death. The root reason for 10 out of 10 people dying is sin in the world, corroding our bodies, corrupting us over time. So that's part of why people lived for so long, because sin, imagine having something that's designed to last a long time, right? Whether it be, I don't know, a pencil or a car or whatever, it's designed to last a long time. But then you take that car and you use it in ways it wasn't meant to be used. That's going to drastically affect its ability to last long. It's the same thing here. Man was designed to live eternally, but sin... Over time, this food coloring of sin has infected the whole gallon of water, the gallon of our age. So, um, so that's kind of the idea of who wrote Genesis, where that comes from, 
a peek into why we're able to live as long as we are. And then the last one, how do you get rid of doubts in your salvation? So we've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but how do you get rid of doubts in your salvation? Um, How do you know that you know that you know? For me, it's almost like I have walls built up. I've accepted Christ, but I doubt that I actually did because I doubt that I'm going to heaven. How do you get rid of these walls? So this is one of those, again, you're in this pattern of doubt, right? If you, and, and we'll all be here at some point in our lives. You're in this pattern of doubt. You have to stop and, and come see me or talk to your parents. Look at the pattern of life that you're living. Is something about that pattern impacting your doubt? Are you doubting because you're wrestling with or really deep in pornography or you're angry all the time or you never spend time in your Bible or you never spend time in prayer? I'm not saying that if, you, if you'll pray and you'll stop watching pornography, you'll become a Christian. But the fact is, anytime you fall into some of these sins, it's like dumping water on fire. Are you doing things that are going to keep this fire warm? Are you doing things that are going to strengthen your relationship to Christ? Do you spend, you know, Francis Chan has a great example of, you know, ladies, would you, is he really dating you if he never calls you or never gets you gifts or never holds your hand? Or is he, are you guys really dating or does he just say that? It's the same thing. Do you spend time with Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Not perfectly, but consistently. Are you taking steps to keep this fire warm? That's where doubt comes from. Doubt comes from darkness, right? If you can see things clearly, then you don't doubt it because you see it. What are you doing that's, making, that's allowing this darkness to creep into your life? Another good litmus test is this. And I know it's different for students, but do you love, so, so do you love the Bible? Do you love learning about the Bible? Do you, and I know some of you, it's like, I don't know anything about the Bible, so I'm not supposed to love it. Well, do you want to learn more, though? Do you want to learn more about the Bible, or is it just out of date and boring to you? The root question for doubt is this. Um, do you care enough about your doubts to actually do something? That's where you have to start. Because so often we talk about how you doubt, and then you leave, and you do nothing to change your life. Which shows me that that doubt was just kind of this flare-up, that you got nervous for a minute, and now you want to come talk. But the real thing that will change is the actions that you take when you leave the conversation.